are three co-equal and co-eternal persons. The same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. $100 theological word for existence. That's B.B. Warfield from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, back from 1930. Trinity is, of course, not a biblical word, but it's a biblical concept. The doctrine of the Trinity is a biblical doctrine. The deity of the Holy Spirit is not as easily established as that of the Father or of the Son. I should say that up front. It could be said that the deity of the Father is simply assumed in Scripture. It's never argued for. The deity of the Son is both affirmed and argued for in the Scriptures, while that of the Holy Spirit must be inferred from various indirect statements found in Scripture. That's what we're going to do tonight, discuss the deity of the Holy Spirit. There are, however, several bases on which one may conclude that the Holy Spirit is God in the same fashion and to the same degree as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is God in the same fashion and to the same degree as the Father and the Son. And these will be the three bases. The Holy Spirit is called God, and he's identified as God. The second, the Holy Spirit possesses the perfections of God. And third, the Holy Spirit performs the works of God. And that will be our outline for tonight. The Holy Spirit is called God and identified as God. The Holy Spirit possesses the perfections of God. And the Holy Spirit performs the works of God. Well, the first passage, and probably the only passage where this comes up, the least prominent passage that I'm aware of, is Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. So I invite you to open your Bibles there. This is the passage where the Holy Spirit is called God. It's the Ananias and Sapphira passage. And I want to read it from the first of the chapter, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, to give you an idea of the context here. Acts chapter 5 begins this way. But a certain man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Verse 7, now there elapsed an interval of time of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Well, no kidding. If I had seen that, it would have come upon me too. Fortunately, when we see things like this scripturally, 
the very first time something happens, oftentimes God comes down with a pretty heavy hammer. Thankfully, God doesn't come down with a heavy hammer on everybody who lies about how much they give to the church in, in these times or who gets a receipt for something that maybe shouldn't be a taxable, charitable kind of receipt. But in this case, this is the very first time this has happened, and God dropped both Ananias and Sapphira dead. Their motivation seems to have come from the previous chapter, when the church was coming together in a really big way, and a man named Barnabas, who when we studied Acts, we learned a lot about him, but a man named Barnabas owned a piece of land and stole the land and brought the money into the church, just gave it all. One of the interesting things about this passage, it doesn't say that we need to give all the money that we have to the church. That was never that was never the problem with Peter. The problem was that they came in and lied. In other words, they probably saw all the approbation that Barnabas had received, and they thought, well, we want to receive that approbation too. And so they sold this land, and then they kept back some of the profits. That in itself was perfectly legitimate. There's no problem with that. The problem came with them lying publicly about how much they had given. And the place where this intersects with the doctrine of the deity of the Holy Spirit is here. In verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then we drop down in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was under your control... It wasn't not under control. Why is it that you have conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. See, first he says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Then he says you've lied to God. If someone was to say you lied to Bruce, and then later on say, well, you lied to God, it's not necessarily one and the same thing. But when it's the Holy Spirit, it is the same thing. And then later on, the Spirit is brought up again, the Spirit of the Lord. This is one of those places where the Holy Spirit is called God. But I hope you see, in looking at this particular passage, that admittedly, this is not as strong of a passage as some of the passages for the deity of Christ. I wish it was, but it's not. But it is a passage that speaks of the Holy Spirit being called God. We don't have that vast number of passages like to study on the deity of the Holy Spirit calling him God that we did the Son. The deity of the Father is assumed. The deity of the Son is affirmed and argued for. The deity of the Holy Spirit is inferred. So we have that inference from this passage that the Holy Spirit is God. That's the first line of argumentation. The Holy Spirit is called God and identified as God. But there's more. That's not the only reason why we consider the Holy Spirit God. The second line of argumentation is that the Holy Spirit possesses the perfections of God. Before I give you some of the perfections that the Bible ascribes to the Holy Spirit that are also ascribed to God, let me say this. If only one perfection was ascribed to the Holy Spirit that's ascribed to God, that would be sufficient. But it's not just one of the perfections. There are several. And let's begin with this one, eternality. The text tells us this. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse your consciousness from acts that led to death so that we may serve the living God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. In that passage, the Holy Spirit is called eternal. That is one of the infinite perfections of God. And one of the infinite perfections of God is now ascribed to the Holy Spirit. So we see him called God in Acts chapter 5. And now an infinite perfection that belongs to God is applied to the Holy Spirit. But it's not just that. 
the Spirit of the Lord is holy. And that is a characteristic and infinite perfection of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus our Lord. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. In context, that's the Holy Spirit. And I've even used it many, many times already tonight. The most common title for the third person of the Trinity in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. So just by virtue of the name that's ascribed to him most, we see his characteristic of holiness. Jesus, remember, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't just say, I speak the truth, but he said, I am the truth. We might be able to speak the truth, but we would never want to say, we are the truth. Only God could say that. Only he could say, I am the truth. Well, the truth is also something that's ascribed to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. The Holy Spirit is truth. So we've seen that the Holy Spirit is eternal, the Holy Spirit is holy, and the Holy Spirit is truth. The Spirit of truth, John chapter 16, verse 13. The Holy Spirit is also omniscient. Only God is omniscient. Creatures can be really, really intelligent. But they're not omniscient. And I say this because in a future study we'll consider angels. Angelic beings are incredibly intelligent. And from what I can see from the scriptures, angelic beings, as it stands now, almost goes without saying that they have a higher intelligence than human beings do. As it stands now. When we get to the eternal state, I think that'll be equaled out or maybe even reversed. But right now... There's no question that even a fallen angel, like Lucifer, like Satan, is smarter than human beings. He's not smarter than God. That's why we need to make sure that we're on God's side. Satan is more powerful than human beings as well. He's not more powerful than God. That's why we need God on our side. But the Holy Spirit has this characteristic of God called omniscience. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 read this way. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except this man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We talked about before when we were talking about when we introduced the whole study into basic theology or the fundamentals of the faith. We spoke about three systems of divine revelation to mankind, or three theories of how God revealed himself to mankind. The first theory was called the univocal theory of divine revelation. And that meant that the way God revealed himself to mankind, there was a one-to-one -one correspondence. And that God's revelation completely and totally and perfectly corresponds to how God is. We rejected that, in fact all rejected because in order to have a one-to-one -one correspondence called a univocal theory of revelation, one would have to be God. We'll never have a one-to-one -one correspondence. We'll never completely, perfectly, 100% understand the infinite. Because even in heaven, we'll still be finite. We won't be infinite creatures in heaven. We may have a, a lot of the boundaries removed from us, maybe space travel and some of these other things, but we won't be infinite. 
So there is no one-to-one correspondence. You'd have to be God in order to be able to understand God that way. The second form was called the equivocal theory of divine revelation. In that theory, there is no correspondence. Those who adhere to that theory, and actually there aren't any that would write that down, but some adhere to it practically, even if they don't theoretically. In that theory, there is no correspondence between the way God is and the way he's revealed himself to mankind. In other words, people might say, I know the Bible says that God is love, but God's love is nothing at all like our understanding of love. If God's love is nothing at all, nothing at all like our understanding of love, I would propose to you there has been no communication that's taken place. None whatsoever. If it's not like it at all, then no communication has taken place. You haven't told me anything. If you say God is love, but I have no clue as to understanding what that means. So the equivocal theory is also rejected by every theologian that I know, at least in theory. The third theory was the analogical theory, and that is God is like this. Yes, God is love, and I know what love is. Now, God's love is perfect, and mine is imperfect. God's love is totally objective. My love is subjective. God's love is consistent. My love is inconsistent. But I still have a general grasp of what it means when it says that God is love, or for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As someone who has two sons and a daughter and a grandson now, I can understand that, at least analogically. I can have some idea of what was going on there. And those who have sacrificed sons or sons and daughters in, say, military conflict, I think they can even have a greater understanding. Because not only would they understand the love, but they'd understand the sacrifice, too. Not that they love their son or their daughter. Not that they, they may love their nation, but they also see the sacrificial aspect. So that's the analogical idea. Those were the three theories of divine revelation we studied in the very first lesson. I think that's five lessons ago now. The reason we studied that was for times like this. And that is that in order to understand God univocally, one-to-one, you have to be God. The Holy Spirit understands God with a one-to-one correspondence, which makes him God. He can't be anything else. Satan doesn't understand God with a one-to-one correspondence. His, his understanding may be greater than ours. I don't know. Still don't understand how he fell like he did. But having access to the throne room of God, that's one of the mysteries of all, of all history. But he has a one-to-one correspondence. He is omniscient. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who, knows, for who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way... No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Father's knowledge has a one-to-one correspondence with the Spirit's knowledge. So we see that God, God the Holy Spirit is eternal, He's holy, He's truth, and He's also omniscience. But not, it doesn't end there. The Holy Spirit is also omnipresent. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 8, a passage that we probably don't spend enough time in. We, we have in the past, it's a wonderful passage. But David, speaking here, says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. David is not wanting to be freed of God's spirit. He's happy that he cannot be freed from God's spirit. Where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere. There's nowhere that I can go to be freed from your spirit. 
If you're walking in fellowship with God, that's a very comforting thing. If you're not walking in fellowship with God, that can be a very frightening thing. Because wherever you're going, God's going with you. And you might think you snuck around the block and went in the back way somewhere, but it doesn't work out that way. God's the Holy Spirit right there with you. And that includes websites visited or whatever it may be. People think they're getting away from things, away with things, and they're not. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent, which is a characteristic that only God enjoys. Satan is not omnipresent. Human beings certainly aren't, but sometimes people get the idea that angels might be omnipresent, or at least we talk that way about Satan. We have people all over the world, probably even today, in churches all over the world that talk about probably the way that Satan was after them personally. Satan can't be after you personally, in person, all over the world. He can only be one place at one time. He does have subordinates that work for him, many, many millions apparently, that can be in a lot of different places. But even they can only be in one place at one time. Omnipresence is a characteristic that belongs to God and to God alone. And also, the Holy Spirit is said to be omnipotent. In Genesis chapter 1-1, we have an overview of the idea of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We studied that several years ago now, and we saw that that was probably a message statement or a title statement for the rest of the chapter. And we have also seen that Jesus Christ is the agent of creation amongst the Trinity. He is a member of the Trinity that's the agent of creation. But we also see that the Holy Spirit had some role to play. Because by the time we got to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when everything was tohu vabohu and hoshek, it was formless and void and dark, we saw that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And the Spirit of God was intimately involved in either the original creation of the earth or the restoration of the earth, whichever view you take on that particular issue. And you can be orthodox taking both views. But the Holy Spirit of God did something that requires omnipotence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit each possess all of the divine attributes co-equally, co-eternally, and infinitely. This means that God the Father is not more powerful than God the Son. God the Son is not more powerful than God the Holy Spirit. Same way with omniscience. God the Father is not smarter than God the Son. God the Son is not more intelligent than God the Holy Spirit. They all possess the same eternality, the same truth, the same omnipotence, the same omnipresence, all of the divine perfections to the same degree. So we have three lines of argumentation, three bases for saying that the Holy Spirit is God. The first, he's identified as God, and that's in Acts chapter three, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Then the Holy Spirit possesses the perfections of God, and we, we gave you several of them now. The final line of argumentation is that the Holy Spirit performs the work of God. The Holy Spirit performs the work of God, and there are five lines of argumentation here. The first is in creation. We mentioned that a moment ago. In Psalm 104, verse 30, when you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the fact of the earth. The Holy Spirit is involved in creative activity. Psalm 104, verse 30. The Holy Spirit's also involved in revelation. Now watch this for a minute. If you've got this information that God has, and he's going to give it to man, and it's going to be done in an analogical way, The person that's giving that information 
has got to thoroughly understand for the one-to-one correspondence the information that he's giving. Otherwise, we can never know that the revelation that came from that source really came from the source that we would call God. So the Holy Spirit being involved in God's revelation shows that he is indeed God. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Inspiration is another, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Those prophets and apostles were moved by the Holy Spirit to teach God's message to mankind. The fourth is regeneration. All three members of the Trinity are involved in the salvation process. But the new birth, or to be born again, or to be born from above, if you prefer, is the work of the Holy Spirit. For when the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having hope of eternal life. That's Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. It's the Holy Spirit that does that act of renewal. We could call that a creative act, but we'll talk about it in this sense as a regenerative act. And in order to regenerate somebody, you've got to be God. And then finally, sanctification. Sanctification is a threefold process. Positionally, we're set apart by the Holy Spirit and made holy in Christ at conversion. At conversion, we're positionally sanctified. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. But experientially, some might say practically, believers progress in sanctification as they grow in the likeness of Christ. We call that the maturing process. We may start down here and we mature with time. That's the ideal. And the Holy Spirit is involved in that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And then ultimate sanctification, none of us have achieved that. And ultimate sanctification comes when believers pass into the presence of Jesus Christ himself. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 through 27. Person chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. All three members are involved in that process, but the Holy Spirit is the specific agent of the Trinity that's most often mentioned in the sanctification process. Again, there's three lines of argumentation. The Holy Spirit is called God and he's identified as God. The Holy Spirit possesses the perfections of God, and the Holy Spirit performs the works of God. So in the discussion of the Trinity, we find that the deity of the Father is assumed in Scripture. You never have to have a theologian make a case that God the Father is God. It's assumed. The deity of the Son is affirmed and argued for. And I hope you saw in the last lesson, or two lessons ago, when we studied the deity of Christ, There were a lot of passages that talked about the deity of Christ, and we only covered some of them, and it took up the entire time. So the deity of the Son is affirmed and argued for. The deity of the Holy Spirit is more difficult to establish, but it can be done, because the deity of the Holy Spirit is inferred rather than affirmed and argued for. And we see these three lines of reasoning when it comes to the 
Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He's called God. He possesses the eternal perfections of God, and he performs the works of God. The Holy Spirit is God. 